Well, good morning. It's good to see you. We are in a year-long study of prayer, and we are sort of turning the corner, doing something a little bit different from now on through the rest of the year, at least most of the rest of the year. We are going to be looking at ancient prayers, prayers in the Bible, learning how to pray. And so, of course, we're starting today in Genesis with this prayer that Abraham has for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, lots we can learn about prayer here from uh, learning from Abraham. But imagine uh, you decided to go for a, a drive up in the mountains by yourself. You wanted to go down some of the beautiful dirt roads we have in Colorado, and you get up there, and you're seeing the scenery, and you're way off the beating path, and then it starts to snow, and you're a little bit surprised because it's May, and it never snows in May in Colorado, right? And, uh, and so at first you're not too worried, but then the snow begins to pile up, and it's coming down heavy, and you realize you need to start making your way back home. And so it's getting late. You turn around. You start heading back home. And uh, the road's a little bit slicker than you thought. You're going a little bit faster than you should. You slide off the road, and you're now stuck. You are miles and miles from nowhere, and you're up there in the mountains, and it is about to get very, very cold. So you get out, and you start walking, and you figure about 10 miles to civilization. It might take a while, but you get out there and walk, and you're cold, and it's freezing. And suddenly you look off, and it's getting dark, and you see a, a light in a window, and you didn't even know there were any cabins up here. And so you see this light, and you start walking towards that light, and there's a cabin there. But you're trying to decide what you should do because you've heard about people who moved to the mountains. And why do people move to the mountains? To get away from you, right? That's why they do that. And so you're wondering who's in there. And you look in there and you can see a man in the window. And he's, he's a bit gruff looking. And you can't tell if he's alone or not. And uh, you're thinking about going to knock on the door. But there's a big sign that says, keep out in bold letters. There's snow in your shoes because you didn't wear boots because it's May. Uh, you're, you're cold, you're wet, you have a long way to go. Do you knock on the door or not? Well, it could be. He's a very friendly man. He's in there with his wife and she just baked some cookies. He's going to invite you to sit by the fire, right? That could be. Or it could be he thinks you're a trespasser and he shoots you on sight. It could be, right? You don't know. And so there's something about you thinking, I don't know whether I should knock. I don't know whether I should ask because I don't know who's behind that door and you're afraid. At least I would be afraid. I wouldn't know what to do. In fact, to be honest, I probably would keep on walking because, because I don't know what I'm going to find behind that door. I think that's the way many times we approach prayer. We don't know who's behind the door. We, we, we know we need help. We, we want to ask, but, but we don't know what kind of God we're going to encounter. We know he's powerful. We know he's mighty. But is he... Going to, how is he going to react? Does he want to hear from us? Is he willing to help? And we're afraid to ask because we don't really know what God is like. I think one of our biggest reasons we struggle with prayer is we don't really understand God. We don't under, know what to expect. By the way, they've done these studies about people. They found that if you're in an office environment and you have a boss, say one person has a boss who's always mean, and another person has a boss that is sometimes mean and sometimes nice, but they can't predict how the boss is going to be. If you have a boss who's always mean, you actually have higher job satisfaction than when you do with a boss who's sometimes mean. If you don't know what to expect, you're paralyzed. You don't know what to do. And I think for many of us, we don't know what God is really like. What, how's he going to respond to this? What, what does God 
what does God want? What's he going to do? In order to be powerfully effective in prayer and to be a people of prayer, we have to have confidence on who's going to answer the door when we knock. And as we see in this encounter with Abraham, that God has with Abraham and Abraham has with God is because Abraham knows God, he knows his character, and because of that, we see Abraham being incredibly bold in his prayer. Incredibly bold. So let's look at his prayer in order to learn how we might be bold as well. And so we're going to look at two things. And the first thing is, who are we? And the second is, who is God? And if we understand those two things, it will help us to pray far more effectively. So let's begin with, who are we? Uh, We are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Now, when Abraham was 75 years old, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to be a God to you, to your descendants after you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so I'm going to bless you, Abraham. But I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing because through you, all the families, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You are being blessed, and because you are being blessed, you are going to be a blessing to others. You're you're blessed to be a blessing. Well, that was when Abraham was just a young man at 75. That was 24 years earlier. He is now 99 years old. His wife is a mere 89 years old. Uh, They have had a child through Hagar, but that's not the child of the promise. And so now Abraham still doesn't have this promise fulfilled. He's 99, she's 89, and he's got to be wondering, where's the blessing? How am I going to be the father of a great nation if I can't even be the father of one? And so it seems to be an impossible situation for Abraham. There's, you know, there's no way he can be a, uh, be a blessing. But the Lord then, before we didn't read this part, but before uh, he is there, Abraham's 99 years old, and he's sitting there, and it's the heat of the day, and he's sitting there, maybe not in his rocker, but he's sitting there at the door of his tent, and he's looking out, and he sees these three travelers coming by. And he invites these travelers to come in for a feast, and it's quite a feast. He said, what he says to them, let me give you a little morsel of bread. And by morsel of bread, he means slaughter a cow, bake some bread, full meal, the whole bit. That's what he means. He gives them this remarkable feast. What Abraham does not realize initially is that two of the three men are angels, and the third one is the Lord himself in human form. And Abraham prepares them this feast, and as the three get up to go, Uh, The Lord says to Abraham, by the way, this time next year, Sarah is going to have the son. You are finally going to have the child of the promise. Sarah laughs, different story there, don't have time to go into that. But God says, no, this is going to happen. You're going to have a child. And then as the three get ready to leave, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Because God is headed off to Sodom. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the reason this is a relevant question is because God has promised to bless Abraham, and not only that, he's called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. And as God's chosen people, Abraham and his descendants are to be a blessing to the nations. In fact, that verse in Genesis 12, when God says you are to be a blessing to the nations, can also be translated as a command, be a blessing to the nations. And so God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do to this nation over here? Because Abraham is called, in a sense, to be a priest on behalf of the world. God has not chosen Abraham and the Jews simply for themselves. God has chosen them to serve as a priest 
for the sake of the world, that through them salvation is going to come. Through them, they're to intercede. In fact, we see this in Exodus 19, verse 6, that God describes the nation of Israel as a kingdom of priests. Now, what does a priest do? A priest is one who offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. A priest intercedes for the people before God. The priest prays for the people. And so Abraham has this priestly role among the nations. He is is a priest before God for the sake of the nations. And so that's what he does on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, by the way, God has not yet told Abraham that he plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's only saying, I'm going to go check things out. Now, Abraham's not naive. He knows what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's aware of what's going on, and he knows when God goes and sees. And by the way, God already knows himself. He's speaking in a way that Abraham can understand. Uh, Abraham knows that when God sees what happens, uh, that there will be uh, judgment of God. And so Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of these evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you catch that? Abraham knows Sodom and Gomorrah are evil. He knows that these are cities of violence and oppression and all sorts of things. And yet, even though he knows that about Sodom and Gomorrah, he prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of saying, good God, finally someone's going to do something about all these wicked people, these people who aren't like me. God, go down there and nuke them. Bring the fire and the brimstone. That's not what Abraham says. Abraham sees the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah. He understands the wickedness there, and he prays on their behalf, even though he knows uh, who they are, even though he knows what they are like. And that's what it means to be the chosen people of God. We are to be a priest priest to the world. And that's not just for Abraham. By the way, that's for us. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God says we're chosen people, and we are, we, not me, we, we are a kingdom of priests. And as priests, we are to, to intercede on behalf of the world and also to announce the goodness of God into this dark place. Like Abraham, we are blessed to be a blessing. We're chosen to be priests. Like Abraham, we're called to pray for a sinful world. We're called to ask God not to give them what they deserve, but instead to plead for grace. How can we do that? How can we look and see the evil in the world, the, the, the terrible things that people are doing, and say, oh, Lord, don't give them what they deserve. Give them grace. Well, we do that because, because we are people who've received grace. We know better than anyone else that we stand by grace alone. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we too were once children of wrath like the rest. We were dead in our sins, yet God showed us mercy. And because of this, because we know that we stand by grace alone, when we look out at others, no matter what they're doing, we can't look out at them and, and say, nuke them, Lord. You know, we're praying judgment on ourselves when we pray that. We're saying, Lord, we stand here by grace. You've shown us grace. You've shown us mercy. Lord, please, even as you've shown us mercy and grace, we plead for mercy for them. If, we, if we're crying out for, for judgment on them without wanting it on ourselves, it's, it's hypocrisy. Uh, it, it, it'd be hypocritical. 
So we have this calling to be priests in the world, to intercede on behalf of the people of our community. And do we do that? Do we, do we pray? Do you look and when you, you see what's going on in the world, when you see the, what's happening, uh, the persecution of Christians around the world, when we see the evil that is happening in our own country, do, do you stop and you pray and say, oh, Lord, please, please, don't give us what we deserve. Lord, show us mercy. Show, show, show compassion even on these people because I, too, if I were to get justice, I'd be up a creek as well. Well, the reason uh, we oftentimes don't do that. You know, one of the reasons, let's be honest, oftentimes when I, let's be honest, say that church. Do I have to say that church? Yes, I do. Let's be honest. Um, oftentimes we pray. We are so focused on ourselves that we don't see the needs of those around us. Uh, my, one of my natural gifts is not empathy. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just I can be, I'm, I'm Captain Oblivious. I, I don't see things that are going on around me. I don't, I don't notice these things. And oftentimes that's because of a sinfulness that we're so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't see the pain of those around us. And the way that we get our eyes off of ourselves is by understanding that, that God is the one who's caring for us. Notice this, before God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that he's going to check out Sodom and Gomorrah, that is, God tells Abraham that he's going to have a son, that by this time next year he will have a son. Now, now uh, God's confirmed his promise. God has told him he's going to have a son by this time next year. Now, this announcement of a child. Now, to us in our day, for, you know, barrenness, not being able to have children, is certainly an extremely painful thing for many, many couples. And, and, it, and, it's, and, it's, uh, and so we can understand Abraham and Sarah's pain. But in the ancient Near East, it was particularly painful because children were, were a sign of blessing but also a sign of security. I mean, if you didn't have children, uh, that was it. it. It was over for you. And, and so, so it, it seemed like, who is going to take care of you? And so when God says, Abraham, by this time next year, you will have a son, God is again confirming his promise. Abraham, you don't need to worry about you. I've got you. I'm caring for you. Now imagine this. What if we actually believed God's promise when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I'm going to take care of you. I will never leave you, never forsake you. You don't need to worry about you. Think of how much time you would have if you didn't worry about you. I mean, think how much energy you would have if you didn't have to worry about you. What if you could take your to-do list? All the things to worry about, scratch you off, you're taken care of. God's got you. If God's got you, you don't need to worry about you. Now you can have a priestly heart towards others. Now you can see the needs of others uh, because you're not worried about you. When we're convinced that God cares for us, we don't have to worry about ourselves. Jesus put it this way. He says, you know, consider the birds of the air. This is in, in Matthew 6. He says, they neither sow nor they reap and will gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? I mean, the birds, he, he provides for them. Won't he also provide for you? We become so consumed by our own wants, needs, and feelings that we become uh, what St. Augustine, he was an African theologian, 5th century, St. Augustine said we are inconvertus in se. 
uh, New York uh, Magazine uh, put an illustration of it this way, uh, that uh, we are like this. I like the phone there and the picture. Uh, you know, we are, we are inconvert us and say, we are curved in on ourselves. We are looking so inward, it's all about us, or as Paul Tripp says, my wants, my needs, my feelings. He says that, Tripp says that the momentum of sin is inward. It causes me to shrink down the world to the size of my life. It causes me to daily worship at the altar of my wants, my needs, my feelings. And so all the world gets down to be me. But if we are God's people, if we are aware that we are loved by God, cared for by God, provided for by God, uh, then, then what that does, it transforms us from being curved in on ourselves to being extrovertus exe, which is curved out from ourselves. Curved out and, and seeing the world around us. I don't have to worry about me if God's worried about me, and therefore I can have an outward focus. It, it gives us what is, what is really true humility. C.S. Lewis is reported as saying, humility is not thinking more of yourself, and it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking more of yourself, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You don't have to think about you. And when you don't have to think about you, you can think about others. Christians, we are a a royal nation, a, a holy priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And as such, God has called us to be priests in this world, to be concerned about the people of this world, to pray for the people of this world. One of the reasons we have the flags around here is just to remind us to pray for the nations, pray for the world, pray for the lost, pray for the people on your street, pray for, pray for those who are, are in the bondage of sin, pray for those who are in danger of experiencing the judgment of God. Pray for them that they may know mercy even as we've found the mercy of God. So we've got to know who you are. Secondly, we've got to know who God is. Well, who is God? Well, God is both just and merciful. Just and merciful. And, and look again at verse 20. God says he's going down to Sodom, verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Now, now, God is not going down to Sodom and Gomorrah because of a few minor picadillos, because, but because of acts of unspeakable evil. Now, in our day, Sodom and Gomorrah have become synonymous with homosexuality, and there certainly are a number of biblical passages that deal with homosexuality, adultery, fornication, uh, even lust. And so the Bible is very clear uh, that these behaviors are offensive to God and are opposed to human flourishing. But if you read Genesis 19, the next chapter, when we read about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot, what we find here is that the, the men of Sodom are not looking for consensual activity. They are sexually violent predators. And what we have the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is this, this extreme violence, extreme uh, brutality that is part of their culture. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 16, 49, gives us another glimpse into the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 16, 49 says this. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So the sin of Sodom that God mentions here 
is not just sexual immorality, but it, it is, it's violence, it's oppression, and it's a failure to care. They have the means to care for the poor among them, but instead of caring for them, they abuse them and mistreat them and are violent towards them. And so we read here in, in, in Ezekiel and in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah were excessively violent and callous. And so in verse 20, 20 of our passage, God says, the outcry against them is great and their sins are very grave. These cities have become cesspools of human violence and degradation, and people were suffering as a result. People will say, how can God be good and be a God of judgment? And here Genesis 18 answers that question for us. It is because God is good, he's a God of judgment. The outcry of the violence and the evil that is going on there has come up to God and he's a righteous judge and he hears about the suffering that is happening because of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and God, as a righteous judge, can't simply ignore it. He can't, he can't allow the violence to continue and the evil to continue and the, the human suffering to continue. And so God must act. It would be, it'd be cruel for him not to act. It'd be like a, 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 a policeman standing there watching as violent crimes take place and having his arms folded. You'd say, that's an awful policeman. It, it, it's an evil man who does nothing. But God can't do nothing. He must act because he's a God of love. And so these cities are in danger of facing God's judgment. And Abraham knows this about God. He knows that God is just. And he knows that God will not act in a capricious way. He's not a God who simply throws divine temper tantrums and says, brimstone here, brimstone there. <laughs> He's a God who acts out of love and out of justice. And, and so because of this, notice how Abraham prays. He doesn't simply ask for mercy for Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays towards God's justice. He appeals to God's justice. He says in verse 23, Will you indeed, O Lord, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That doesn't sound right. Verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do you notice the boldness of Abraham's prayer? He's coming before God. He says, God, if, if you just wipe away the city and their innocent people there and you just kill the innocent indiscriminately with the, with the wicked, he says, that's not right. That's not just. You can't, you can't do that. Now, what gave Abraham the boldness to pray that way? He knows the character of God. He knows that God will not do what is wrong, that God will only do what is right, and he pleads with God on the sake of justice. So, so here's what we learn about prayer. The, the more you know about the character of God, the bolder you're going to be in prayer. And when we pray, we're not asking God to go against his nature. We're pleading with God based on who God is. God, this is justice. We're praying that you would act in a just way, that you would do what is right. And so Abraham starts by praying that God would spare the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah even if there are only 50 people there. Once God agrees to that, Abraham says, now what about if there are only 45? You know, just for shortness of five, are you gonna really bring judgment on them? And God says, no, for this, I won't. And then he keeps going all the way down to 10. Now at first, 
This sort of looks like negotiations, right? They're kind of haggling over the price of the car. Okay, well, you take 50 bucks now, how about 10 bucks? You know, it seems like this negotiation. That's not what's happening. Uh, Abraham is not negotiating with God. Uh, rather, what Abraham is doing, we see with each question from Abraham and each response from God, the truth of God's justice is being drilled into Abraham's heart. God will by no means sweep away the righteous with the guilty. God will by no means go against his own holy character. The judge of all the earth will always do what is right in everything that he does. And again and again, God confirms to Abraham and to us that he will do what is right. The innocent will not suffer the judgment of the wicked. Now, why is this important in prayer? Because when we go to pray, uh, we go to pray, we go to God and we plead with him on the basis of justice. I'm saying, Lord, do what is right. Now, where this gets to be a challenge is there are times when we will question the goodness and the justice of God. I, I do this. My guess is you do this. You know, every week, every week in this church, somebody uh, loses a loved one. Every week, someone here faces a tragedy. Every week, a member of this church is in the hospital. Every week, a number of families in this church experience some sort of marital or family crisis. Every week, a number of, pe of people walk into this building with incredibly great, great pain. And if this is not your week, one day it will be. It is coming. And in those times when tragedy hits you and it seems that, or it's hitting someone you love, you're going to begin to, to say, say, why? Why is this happening? God, you're not fair. Now, there's nothing wrong with crying out and saying, oh, Lord, why is this happening? It's a, that's a biblical prayer, by the way. We see it throughout the Psalms where the psalmist cries out and model prayers for us, Lord, I don't understand, I don't get it, why is this going on? And he continues to cry out against the Lord. But what can happen is you go from crying out against the Lord to, to, uh, to accusing of the Lord. And then you go from accusing of the Lord to pronouncing judgment on the Lord. Lord, you are an unjust God. Lord, you do not do what is right. It is not right for you to do what you've done. It is not right for you to, to, uh, to treat people in this way. And when that happens, then the distance between you and God grows because why are you going to pray to an unjust God? Why are you going to pray to a God who doesn't do what is right? And so again and again, we must remind ourselves of who God is. That God is just. He always does what is right. We don't always understand God, what God is doing. Again, but that doesn't that make sense, right? I mean, we're, we're human beings. Our brains are this big. God knows more than I do. He's wiser than I am. I mean, isn't it, you know, isn't it kind of arrogant to think I'm going to understand everything God is doing? And if God can't explain himself to me, he must be wrong. Now, that, that's pretty much the height of human arrogance. The humility is coming before God and saying, Lord, I don't get it. I really don't get it but I believe that you're just and I'm gonna to continue to pray to you based on your justice. I'm gonna to continue to pray to you because I know in the end, Lord, you will do what is right. If I lose sight of God's justice, I can't pray anymore. And so Abraham pleads with God on the basis of his justice. 
And ironically, it's in seeking the justice of God that we also discover the mercy of God. Because God is just, he will not punish the righteous along with the guilty. So what does that mean? That means that God is going to be merciful to the guilty for the sake of the righteous. God actually will show mercy to the guilty for the sake of the righteous. And we see this in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have these, these two cities who aren't just doing a few things wrong, but have multiplied thousands upon thousands of acts of violence. They deserve judgment. And yet God says, if he can find only 10 people there, I will spare the entire cities. I'll spare them all. Now, it turns out there were not 10, and God rescued the righteous out of there. He did spare the righteous. He did not do anything unjust. But notice there that all of the unrighteous people would have benefited for the the sake of the righteous. And we see this, of course, ultimately in what God has done with us through Jesus Christ. Just as God was willing to show mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous people, God shows mercy to us for the sake of one righteous person, Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus is righteous that God shows us mercy. It's because Jesus, the one righteous man, took on our sin and bore the punishment of our sin that God did not give us the justice that we deserved, but instead gave us the grace that was won for us by Jesus Christ. While God spared many for the sake of one righteous, Jesus suffered the judgment for the sake of the many. Abraham asked, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And in the cross of Jesus, we see that he does. He shows both mercy and justice through the life and death of Jesus. This, too, transforms how we pray. Because when I go to the Lord in prayer, oftentimes, in fact, let me take that back. When I don't go to the Lord in prayer, oftentimes the reason I won't pray is because I'm thinking, I don't deserve it. I, I don't deserve, Lord, for you to answer my prayer. I have not lived the way I ought to. I, I've sinned against you. I have not been pursuing you. And I think, and the crisis comes, I think, I can't pray. I can't pray. I don't deserve God's answer to my prayer. But here's the beauty of Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't answer your prayer because of you. He answers his prayer because of the righteous. You notice that when we pray as Christians, how do we always end our prayers? In Jesus' name, amen. Why do we say that? We say in Jesus' name, because what we're doing, we're saying, Lord, I'm coming to you. I have nothing in my hand. I have no reason why you should bless me. I only deserve your judgment, but I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is the righteous one. And so for the sake of the righteous one who is Jesus, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Because I have been united to him, and I am his And because of what he has done and your love for him, you now have to love me. In Jesus' name, pray, bless me, show me your mercy because I am with the righteous one. When we understand the righteousness and the justice of God, we become priests in the world and pray for the world. So may we be people of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the good news that the gospel gives to us that even though we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And because Christ has died for us, your love for us will never grow cold. And so, Lord, we pray that we would become people of prayer. We, we even now will we'll pause and be like Abraham. We'll pray for our, our city and our world. Lord, we do see many things happening in our city and our country right now that are very disturbing. 
and we are, are fearful because we see uh, how so much of this is contrary to your word and to your will, and it grieves us, and we know it grieves you. But, oh, Lord, we pray, please be merciful. Please be merciful not because we deserve it, not because we are, uh, as a nation, in any sort of special relationship with you, but instead we pray that you would be merciful so that we might continue to share the good news, that we might be priests in this world, that many people might come to see of your beauty and of your glory. And, oh, Lord, we pray, strengthen us to be priests. Strengthen us to pray for our city and for our world. May we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you and onto the needs of those around us. May we have confidence that you are caring for us so that we can be people of compassion even as Abraham was a man of compassion. And, Lord, we pray all these things, not because we have earned them or deserved them, but, Lord, for the sake of the righteous, for the sake of the righteous, Jesus, we pray, hear our prayers. Amen.